Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 14th, 2018. It's a Wednesday in this episode 2182. As a Wednesday, it's interview day. Uh, the guy I'll be bringing on to talk to you today is a guy named Steve Storch. He's a, uh, well, I'd call him a renaissance man. He's a, a man of modern times, but retains a wealth of historical and spiritual wisdom. Uh, his energy and the company that contains it, Natural Sciences Organics, are responsible for the invention of the Vortex Brewer compost tea system and some of the finest biological inoculants and mineral supplements on the planet. Uh, he's going to talk to us today about soil biology, about compost, compost tea, about biodynamics. I'll tell you right up front, he's going to challenge you on some level. Some of the stuff might be a little bit harder to follow. Uh, or a little bit harder to accept, and you'll, you'll hear us talk about how there may be other explanations for why some of these things work and some of the things that seem connected to uh, spirituality or something really are about timing and uh, the challenges in reconciling some of the things that the bio biodynamic field has proven work against modern science and the, the problem that science has reconciling things that have multiple variables, uh, variables in a situation where you're trying to create one variable for a control versus experimental group. Things like that today. Uh, definitely interesting stuff, so hold tight and we'll bring on Steve in just a bit. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. I'll tell you what, KnifeKits.com has a stellar reputation in all of the blade forms and things like that. When they first came to us and wanted to be a sponsor, I guess about eight years ago now, that's how we you know, kind of checked them out. We, we went into those places and like, what do people have to say about them? And it was great back then and it's still good today. And knife kits can, can set you on that hobby of making knives on an easy path. You can buy a kit knife and some basic handle material, maybe get a DVD or a book on how to do the finishing work, use a little YouTube food to, uh, to, to complete your project, and get that first one done, kind of like we used to build models when we were kids with a snap-together model type situation. But as you uh, progress, if you want, they have incredibly cool raw materials. From Damascus steel to uh, handle material like mammoth tusk. I even have a mammoth tusk knife uh, that was made for me by Patrick Rorman, and we bought the mammoth tusk material from KnifeKits.com. So whether you're a master bladesmith or somebody that's just tinkering around with the hobby, check out KnifeKits.com today to learn more about building your own knives and other cool things like Kydex for making holsters and what have you. And they do have a discount in the MSB for members as well, so make sure you use that if you place your order with KnifeKits. Next up today, ready-made resources. As I've always said, they are the company that does what they say and say what they do. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. You'll find it all at Ready-Made Resources. From the practical to the tactical, from the guns to gardens and everything in between, they've got it. 12-volt uh, appliances to work with your solar and wind projects, uh, stuff for your garden, the tactical gear, you name it. It's all there at the company that is, does what it says and says what it does. ReadyMadeResources.com, and they also do have a discount for members of the MSB, so check the benefits section of your members' uh, profile if you're a member uh, before you order from ReadyMade Resources. 
On that note, if you uh, want to become a member of the MSB, that's pretty easy to do. Just go on by the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more uh, about that program. But I'll just tell you this up front. If you join as a member, support the show at about 20 cents an episode, and use the discounts that we have for you there to buy things you're probably going to buy over the year anyway, your membership will more than pay for itself. So it's a win-win-win. You win because you get the discounts and support the show you like. I win because I well I, I get to keep doing what I do because the MSB is the number one way that we pay the bills around here. And the providers, the supporting sponsors win because they get incremental business, business they wouldn't have otherwise had. That's what the MSB is all about. Check it out to learn more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And with that, it's my uh, pleasure now to bring on our special guest, Mr. Stephen Storch. Uh, he is a really cool guy with an incredible background. We'll be talking to him a little bit about that. And we will talk to him about microbiology in the soil. We'll talk to him about biodynamics, composting a compost tea, and growing nutrient-dense food. With that, hey, Steve, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm excited about this interview. Soil is the life that, that gives us all life, really. And I have been fascinated with soil sciences over the last 10 years since I began this journey. Uh, and we're going to dig into that at a, a really deep level today. Before we do, though, Steve, so that the audience can kind of connect with you, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, young Steve, 1972, graduating high school and trying to figure out what to do with his life and, and, and how that leads you to where we are today. Because you, you have an incredible background, been in the fishing industry, marine biology, uh, pond construction, uh, you were a triathlete for a while. Tell, tell us a little bit about all that stuff. All right, well, actually my kind of my career in the marine science and fishing world started even before uh, college and in, going into high school, I was lived on the beach in uh, Brooklyn and Coney Island and Seagate. So fishing in the waterfront was always a big part of my life and my friends. And probably I was maybe 11 years old and I was on the beach one morning and I ran into this group of kids with my future uh, marine bio teacher, Lou Siegel. And he had a, a group there, and they were, you know, seining and, you know, identifying shells and bait fish and looking at the marine environment there on the beach, which was pretty interesting because during World War II, uh, Seagate Beach was a hardened uh, military uh, point for defending New York Harbor. So around the... Uh, the, the western point, there was this uh, riprap built parallel to the beach that, you know, years later formed a tidal lagoon that had amazing stuff in it. You know, it had a beautiful uh, bottom with different algaes growing, and there were lobsters burrowing in there, and just, you know, it was a haven for bait fish. So that was kind of like my little world there that really got me into it and then on the other side of the rocks in the open water was just amazing fishing you know striped bass bluefish fluke you know flounder off the beach and i ended up you know running into this class and doc you know mr siegel and i you know I, you had to get a take a test to get into that high school so i 
when it came time, I took the test and I got in. And they had an amazing program. Um, we worked closely with the New York Aquarium, which was just down there, a couple of blocks away. And we did educational programs with other kids on the beach in the summer. And and that kind of folded into me getting into the uh, fishing industry in Sheepshead Bay. You know, they have the, uh, they call them head boats, you know, where people come in with their fishing rods and they get on a boat and they're taken out fishing. And then uh, I got on a couple of different draggers and learned about that. And when I came out to Southampton College for the marine bio program, you know, I worked on the uh, some some boats fishing, commercial fishing for eels, and lobster, and a little bit of dragging. But by then, I kind of switched over to pot fishing because it was less environmentally destructive and kind of more selective. So, and, you know, that, that's where it went. And, uh, and then the other stuff, I, you know, lived out here on the east end of Long Island and actually started my the uh, athletic career because I didn't get a car till I was about 25. So I used to bike ride around everywhere and commute to work that way. And, you know, the training that way taught me a lot about you know, diet and how to eat and take care of yourself. And then, you know, when I got married in the early 80s, my wife's family had a farm here that they've been on. The family's been on the, was on the farm here since like 1644. Wow, it's it's a pretty like I said, pretty incredible background you you have, and 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 this all led you to seeking more nutrient dense food. And of course, to do that, we we have to start with the soil because that's where everything comes from. And in your proposal to be on the show, you mentioned biodynamics, and I think it may be a good lead off if you could. Tell people about the difference between, let's say, conventional uh, fertility development or I should say fertility destruction uh, in conventional farming versus something like uh, organic versus what you talk about with biodynamics. Okay, well, it's kind of a funny story how I got into biodynamics in the first place. So maybe let me, I could start off with that. And I was. I guess it was like 1989. I had been was on, living on the farm here, and I had just gotten a tractor loader for doing landscape work, and we had moved the compost pile over to my section, and I was busy rebuilding it. And I look over, and I, you know, my brother-in-law is with somebody I hadn't really met yet before, and they would digging and see my brother-in-law digging with the shovel was I, I was like I gotta go check this out and uh, so I go over there and they were burying uh, these horns these cow horns so I start asking questions and Hugh Williams who was uh, an Australian that came here and he was an amazing orchardist and he was working with my brother-in-law making this the biodynamic prep 500 and so that kind of like started off that uh, adventure. And because, you know, having my science background, I wasn't 
trained in the way that, like, would hear the esoteric stuff about biodynamics and offhandedly reject it. So I, I it, it was so out there. I said, "Well, I got to try this and see how this works." And you know, in my limited way, I tried it and was watching, and you know, I could see results with it. So I stayed with doing it and 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 that developed into just you know how to apply the the biodynamic preps with the stirring process on a commercial level um but you know the the main difference what's the difference between you know conventional and organic you know unfortunately there's really just the inputs there's really has not developed in that realm, uh, a lot of different thought about how nature works and how soil chemistry and biology works. I mean, basically, a lot of the organic stuff as well, you know, let's get organic NPK and let's find an organic fungicide and an organic bug killer. And, and that whole mindset is still the same. And you don't really uh, change that till you get into the biodynamic process and you know the biodynamic method came from uh, the agriculture lectures which Stein, which Rudolf Steiner gave in 1924 and you know he kind of really introduced a whole new way of thinking about you know the relationship between you know nitrogen oxygen sulfur lime calcium silica and plants and that's that's really the the major big difference is you know thinking about you know the plants and how they build their bodies with those elements and uh, you know that has not been readily accepted in you know 1924 and within six more years it'll be a hundred years and still within the uh, you know within the agricultural industry you know organic. Farmland is probably, you know, under 5%, and within that, probably less than 2%, 1% to 2% is, you know, biodynamic cultivation. And by that, you mean 2% of the 5%, right? That's Right, yeah. right. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, as, a, as somebody with a scientific background and, and, and scientific methodology in your training, that when you first discovered this, you went and did it anyway because... You know, you try it, it works, then you know it works. Like, that's, that's, that's like the, really the basal science uh, of anything. We put it into place and we see what happens. But I, I, from talking to people, and like, I'm a, I, I've spent some time talking to, like, Elaine Ingham, who's also very scientific, but very much in mm -hmm. the same vein. And, and, and it's not that this stuff isn't scientific, but in the scientific research that's done, the problem seems to me is in an effort to be pure, we change only one variable, and we test that one variable, but if we have a completely denuded field, and we only change one variable, and we test it, then we say that variable doesn't work, because these types of things, by their very nature, are the symbiotic relationships that exist between life forms in nature. So if we sterilize everything else away, we can't test one thing at a time and correct the problem or see the result. We have to do this integrated approach. Do you think that is at least part of what holds it back in mainstream science? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, one of my, you know, besides Rudolf Steiner, my other favorite guy from back though in in the uh, turn of the century into the mid 1900s was Victor Schauberger. And you know, Victor's said, you know, comprehend and copy nature. So in 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 doing that, it's like such a complex system. You cannot begin to you know, understand the system with six variables. And, you know, so how do you go ahead and start to, you know, learn that and work and, and figure these things out? You know, you have to you have to deal with holism, you know, how, look at it in a holistic system. And, you know, it's like I wrote a letter to the editor in the newspaper yesterday because, you know, they find it, uh, pertinent to tap themselves on the back, and there's this community that built on the uh, would be the south shore of the Peconic Bay. So you know, if the eastern Long Island has got the Twin Forks, right, the North Fork and the South Fork. So on the north shore of the South Fork, there, you know, there's this large embayment there, like the uh, there's a the Little Peconic Bay and the Great Peconic Bay, Shelter Island Sound and Noyak Bay. In Gardner's Bay and, Sh- and uh, Shelter Island Sound, and that goes out past Montauk towards Block Island Sound. And so anyway, so this one area gets eroded pretty heavily. And first of all, 40 years ago when I was in school, they said, you know, hardening structures on the beach, like bulkheading, you know, like you might think you're preventing erosion, but you're actually causing it. So this little community is all bulkheaded, and they got a big erosion problem. So you know that that what the town did is instead of taxing the whole community, they took a district of people that live there, and they're going to you know tax them an extra half a million dollars over the next ten years or so, and replenish the sand on the beach. But when you when you look at the beach and in, in the holistic picture of the bay. You know, there's from the our worst weather comes out of the northeast, right? We get a northeaster, right? Everybody's heard of a nor'easter, and uh, from the northeast direction, there's eight miles of fetch or open water from the uh, west side of Shelter Island, and it hammers directly on this beach, and then just a little past it to the west is a is an inlet that they dredge. Not, no, they don't really dredge it. That's a that's a, the south race, and there's an island called Robbins Island, and then on the south side there's a prop, property called Cow Neck. But you know the tide runs through there, and this is maybe it's probably close to a mile wide. So there's a serious volume of water running through there, and you know and you can kind of see. From the satellite picture, that uh, on the it, it eddies around, and the eddy comes around, and boom, it hits the beach right there where this place erodes, and that you know lines right up with the northeaster, and so it just strips it strips the sand away, and get and it all gets carried away, and you know in front of the beach there, there's these rocks that have been sitting there for the last. 18, 15,000 years since the end of the Ice Age. 
So instead of like taking a look there and seeing seeing these rocks sitting out in front of the beach that have not moved, that have not really eroded, you know, they think that dumping sand on the beach is going to solve their problem <laughs> instead of like looking like what's right there in front of them. So and and you know and that kind of that's what we deal with whether it's you know beach erosion or agriculture landscaping permaculture gardening you know it's like we're trying to fit in to this pre-existing environment that has its own terms and conditions and way of doing things indeed and you you use compost tea a lot in your work can you talk about what exactly compost tea is and, and how it's used? Okay, well, first I have to say that I came into this whole thing not first through Elaine Ingham's idea of compost tea. You know, I came into it through the Steiner method, which, you know, he, you know, you have the biodynamic preparations and the field sprays that we use, and... You know, they get stirred and potentized in water for, you know, from 20 minutes to an hour. Okay, you take the stuff, you throw it in, you vortex it, and then you spray it. So what you're doing is, you know, it's a process of activating. And actually, I, you know, I ran, I, I met Elaine. She spoke at a vineyard. There's a bunch of vineyard managers out here, and I had been was working with McCary Vineyard at that time and we went and I listened to her and I just said okay well this is interesting because I can take my you know my marine bio fish tank knowledge and apply it to a tea brewer and grow these microbes and then you know and then this idea might be easier to sell than biodynamics so you know, basically what you're doing with compost tea is you're taking, you know, a compost and and then that's like a whole other story about like, well, what is the quality, what kind of compost are you using, where did it come from, how is it made, what were the base ingredients, and you're putting in, you know, the, and the compost is your microbial population starter, and then you're going to add like a source of... Uh, Food, which is anything that's protein, fat, and amino acids for the microbes to feed on, and then you're going to spray it out on the field. And hopefully, you know, it's like throwing a bunch of shit against the wall and seeing what's going to stick. Yeah, so, you know, you do that, and, and you, you spray it on the field, and... And they're always pushing for these huge high numbers of your bacteria, your protozoa. They don't even really talk that much about algae, but I like having algae grow in my teas and brews and fungi. You know, but if you think about it, that stuff is really kind of hard to spray. You know, you got to have heavy particulates. You got to have a big enough orifice so that it doesn't clog your spray nozzle. You don't really want to filter it out too heavily. And whereas the biodynamic method, you would take the stuff, you would activate it and potentize it, and you could filter the sediment out pretty good because, you know, basically you're imprinting the compost substance onto the water and you're applying it to the field. And then, you know, the magic then takes place 
in combination with the soil, the root, and the moisture, and the air that's in the soil. You know, I don't really uh, tell people to worry about what's in the brewer. You know, see, the soil food web method wants you, like, basically look at every batch under a microscope before you spray it and apply it to your field so you know what's in there. Yeah, I found that to be quite honest with you, quite tedious. No, no offense to Elaine, but this idea of each batch, like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make a thing for strawberries, so we're gonna try to brew up this tea that has the specific things that make strawberries do well. And, and, and I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying it doesn't seem very practical to the person that's the typical person listening to my show that is probably growing a massive polyculture in most mm-hmm. instances to try to be dialing in each batch. It just seems like, and that's also just, that's not the way nature works. And then the other side of that is monoculture itself is counter to this concept in my view. Like, you know, I'm not saying you can't have a small plot of corn within your your, your homestead or even on an organic farm or something like that, but if it's, if it's, it's you know, acres upon acres upon acres of one thing, I don't see how you're ever going to get this approach to really work because it's not supposed to be that way. Yeah, that's that's a major, major thing right there. <laughs> so, and And that's not the way it should work. I mean... And, and look, within, uh, like if you have things like grain and you could do a seven year rotation of wheat, oats, lentils, rye, uh, beans, and you really change it up, that's a whole, that's a whole different thing because basically you're growing different grasses. That are going to go to seed, and you're going to you're going to harvest the seed so you, you can get away with it a little more than you know uh, heavy feeding crops like corn and potatoes, say. But you know, for for the average farmer, you know, to try and develop a system for for doing the tea in the timing and checking it. I think it's I think it's a drawback. I mean, there are a lot of people that dove into it big, and a lot of them ended up, you know, in the marketing end of it, either you know, building brewers for people and then selling their inoculant and food sources. Um, so they're not really just, you know, farming. You know, and what I try and do with with my system and coupling it with biodynamics is say, look. You know, here's the, put this in the brewer, you know, run it, you know, you could start in the morning and, you know, spray this before noon one day and then start it at noon and spray it after three another day. So you have like a different, you know, to me, the gesture of the time of day that you spray it is just as important as what's in, in the compost. You know, it's and it's like, you know, my compost is basically, you know, cow manure. I keep a few cows to make this stuff. And, you know, there's a, some of it goes into a pit for what they call, you know, pit manure or barrel compost. And, you know, that gets 
I have a little hammer mill and I grind up seashells, eggshells. I get seaweed from the beach and I dry it and I hammer mill that up into a powder. Um, Gee, I can't imagine why that's effective. My God, that's you know that's that's one of the greatest fertility sources and, and nutrient mineral sources in the world. You know, seaweed. Yes. That's, yeah, it's, and and the, and these dust, these rock dust, and and dust from shells and eggshells. I mean, that's you know that's like the the base component of soil. I mean, look, soil is ground up rock. Right, imagine that. So, like, you have all these big rocks and mountains every place, and their weathering and breakdown process ends up, like, you know, the, the nicest farms are in bottomland. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, you know, bottomland next to a big old basalt mountain. Man, that's good. some good growing conditions there. So, you know, so by imitating that, by looking at that, you know, that system and say, okay, so if I, I got to run it through and it, I'm not going to put this stuff in a process that's going to take a thousand years or five or 10,000 years to get it into a, a dust condition. I have run it through this, you know, little machine. I grind it up and it gets added to the, to my raw, raw compost. It doesn't go in at the end. It goes in at the beginning. So it gets mixed in very thoroughly. And then it goes either into a pile or into one of these pits. And then I use the, uh, you know, biodynamics, there's the compost preparations, which, you know, which is yarrow, chamomile, steam nettles, white oak bark, dandelion flowers, chamomile, and valerian. So you got these six herbs that go in there. And each one of them has like a uh, physical, chemical, elemental association, even planetary and metal association that goes with each one. And you know, you put them in the in the compost pile or within the pit in this manure. And in the, you're only using like even in a twenty to thirty ton pile, I'm only using like a at most a tablespoon of each. And it has a, a radiation effect, and they work together synergistically, and they kick off the compost, and they set it off in a in boom right from the start. It goes off in the right direction. And with, you know, I'm sorry, I thought you were. I was going to say, and with the biodynamic process, with you know, with from the lectures that Steiner gave, you know, and this is you know a little. Uh, makes it a little difficult for a lot of people in the scientific community to want to be associated with is because, you know, besides, you know, the horn manure preparation and the horn silica where, you know, with the horn manure you take cow manure and you put it in a horn and you bury that in the ground for the winter and then that goes, stays in the horn for six, basically six months and comes up after Ascension Day, between Ascension Day and Pentecost. And then you would put silica in the horns and put them in the ground for the summer. Now, if you you look at the process, you know, the silica doesn't really, 
go through any kind of a breakdown process. That's just an energizing, charging process. But if you if you look at the manure that goes in fresh, right, and it's sitting inside a cow horn during the coldest period of the year, and then it comes out as finished compost, and you know you have to ask yourself, well, you know, if the, if if to have USDA NOP, you know, the United States Department of Agriculture, Agriculture National Organic Program compost, you have to turn it every few days and make sure it's 160 to 180 degrees. So you got to ask yourself, how the hell does this manure turn from like, you know, green, fresh manure to brown, unstinking, friable, beautiful compost inside a cow horn buried for the coldest months of the year. And, you know, the answer I could tell you is it's because it's an energetic process. You know, the uh, the cow horn is it's not an antenna. And what it does is it, it kind of radiates energy back into the animal. So if you, if you look at uh, a like the cow horn and the head of a cow, the whole head of a cow, as big as it is, and even a bull, the brain cavity is barely the size of your two fists put together. And the whole rest of it is a sinus cavity that connects the ears, the eyes, the palate, the nose, the throat, and it goes up into the horns of the cow. So when the cow is, you know, eats its grass and it's chewing the hay or the the grass and it's got the cud and it spits it up and chews it again and swallows it and moves it from through the four stomachs and it's constantly exposed to that radiate radiation energy in of the horns and the sinus cavity. And it's a fantastic organism, you know. And if and, and you know it's it's how do you how do we duplicate that process like in a sewage treatment plant? You know how can we how can we do that? Uh, I, I think you have to get scientific buy-in to something that's very difficult to get scientific buy-in on first. And I, I honestly think there might be a completely scientific explanation to this, including the dates. Like the dates sound very ritualistic, but. Um, a lot of the, the pagan faith, for instance, these ritualistic dates actually coincide with seasonality and certain forces that are measurable, uh, mm-hmm. uh, even to the conventional scientists, and it's a way to know when to do something. I mean, I could, what it makes me think of is something as, as simple as this. My, my grandfather used to say, we'll plant the tomatoes when the blackberries flower. Right? I mean, so like, there, are, there are certain timings of, of things that I think maybe can be seen as ritualistic but also are, are quite... Scientific, um, but but you're kind of an interest in moving forward with some of your stuff you have on your outline for me. Can we talk about the difference when we talk about these these teas made with compost. You have on here aerated, static, and biodynamic field sprays. What are the difference between those three? Okay, well the like the um, aerated teas that you know is basically the popular Elaining promoted compost teas are. Uh, actively aerated, so they you know you put in either uh, 
a bubbler of some kind, uh, a stone, you know, that'll break the bubbles up into finer bubbles. So, you know, it's like, like in an aquarium, you know, boom. The thing is aerating and blowing, you know, circulating the water in in the tanks. And, you know, this is, and this is the kind of gets into a conversation I had because originally in it, with compost teas, man, we went through all kinds of stuff about the size of the bubble and the duration that the bubble stays in, like the finer it is and if you can get a really fine bubble and get it captured in the circulation and movement of the water, it'll diffuse more oxygen into the into the water and you know, I've come to believe that that is totally not true because a bubble is a bubble because it's going to, you know, n- not transfer much gaseous material through the bubble wall. Now, it would have to be in there for a pretty long time to have any absorption of gases through the bubble wall. Because, And if you think, like, what's... Even in the biggest brewer I ever built, which is maybe two or three thousand gallons, if you put a bubble in at the bottom of the brewer, it's only going to take, you know, uh, two seconds to get to the top. So that, you know, so like a pond or a lake, you know, the greatest transfer of gases occurs at the surface. So, you know, you're, you're aerating and you you know bubbling the water kind of very chaotically there's not a captured structured form there and even though you could say you know within chaos there is order and structure you, there are going to be zones of that water that don't make it to the top so you know that and so that's actively aerated compost tea you know and you put in your compost you put in a food source protein, fat, amino acids, and you let it go. And, you know, say within 24 to 48 hours, you're going to get your your uh, bacteria and your protozoa to grow pretty good. But if you want to get into growing, you know, your soil fungi, it's going to take, you know, upwards of three days to get it to, get it to go. And then... You know, the biodynamic field sprays, you know, you put your stuff in and either you, you know, you hand stir it and, you know, what you do is you stir it and you create a vortex clockwise and then you reverse it and you and you create another vortex counterclockwise and that goes on for, you know, if you're using the uh, pit manure, the barrel compost, yeah, that's 20 minutes you need to do that. And if it's the uh, horn manure or the horn silica preparation, you need an hour. And, you know, and there, and there you're not, you know, you're activating. It's an activation process. You're not worried about what's going on except for the vortexual action in the container because all the work has gone into the the inoculant into the, the compost, either the horn manure, the barrel compost, or the silica. See, so that takes a lot of guesswork out because, you know, this I did this, and then I just add that, I potentize it with the vortex, and you spray it, and then you watch what happens in, in the earth. 
and then the the static tees have been used for for a long time. You know, like nettles, you know, nettles manure tea, or weed, you know, weed tea. You know, you pull your weeds and you throw them in a barrel and you let them rot down. Equisetum seaweed, you could do that way. And it's it's good because it's uh, low input, low energy. You know, and just you know, the last thing you do is you just you know you aerate. You could aerate it by throwing an air stone in it or agitating it with a with a paddle. Like a you know, people stir like so many of these biodynamic people. They like to stick their arm in the water, and it's got to be warm, and they want to stir with their hand. And I'm like, you know what? Give me a canoe paddle. <laughs> I'm not, not sticking my arm in there. So let's talk about how you make what you consider really great compost tea. Then, like, what's your actual procedure? I guess. Okay. Well, the the main thing is first my compost. You know, like I, I told you, the ingredients that I put into my compost, those herbs, the ground up shell and seashell, eggshell some kind of rock dust it could be basalt it could be granite it could be uh, anything you know yeah i mean one of the my least favorite rock dust is jersey green sand i don't think there's much to that but um in in a lot of places you know if you check any place where there's a quarry you know if you get a sample of their finds and they should have in their federal and state permit some kind of an analysis of what they're digging up. And you could even, even you can even bypass that and look up geology of this area. You know, like I get a lot of good rock dust from westerly Rhode Island. It's a great source. And, and all around, you know, out from there up into, uh, Northern Rhode Island and Massachusetts and New Hampshire, you know, you could look at any geological survey and ask, find out the composition of the deposits there and see where the, where the quarry is that's digging, you know, making gravel for roads and building and cement and concrete. And man, you know, you could, you could buy their fines almost like probably for $15 a ton. You know, you drive in there and have them you know, put a scoop in your truck. It's like next to nothing compared to, you know, buying, uh, you know, if you go and get it bagged, it's going to cost you forty, fifty dollars a bag for somebody to go through that process. You know, and what's it, what's in that crushed rock is all the, the fresh new minerals just exposed to the weather. And then it's, it, you know, the, the finest stuff is a really good size for microbes to just latch onto and start to break, you know, break down and attack the mineral. So, you know, the rock dust is an important component of the compost, or you can add it to the tea if it's, you know, you could, you could take it and you rinse it off in the tea and, you know, you keep the biggest stuff in a, in a bag or in a screen. You don't have to throw it into the brewer to, because, you know, if if it's just sitting on the bottom and it's not getting exposed to the aerated water, it's going to be slightly anaerobic. So you want to try and avoid that. And, um, 
then you put in, I like to use equisetum, which is an herb. I like to use nettles a lot. And then for a food source, the best food source is like, um, you know, you ever hear that dog food, dynamite? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, like a supplement for pets, dynamite, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's really good because it's like uh, alfalfa and uh, flax and a, like a bunch of these really good proteinaceous grains that have not been heated. You know, they grind it up and they mix it. And that, you know, when I did, when I was working at McCary Vineyard, man, we probably spent ten or twenty thousand dollars because we dove into it, you know, big. He is, he's got like two hundred acres of grapes now, and we got into the doing the teas, big time there. We did a lot of testing, and you know, he had, he's got a bunch of dogs that he likes to raise, and he's got, you know, he buy pallets of dog food, and he used to get this powdered stuff, and it wasn't. It wasn't Dynavite, but it was, you know, before they would, you know, take the dog food and heat it and pelletize it and stuff. You know, we had these powders, man. And that that was the best food for the compost tea. You know, with the compost, we had, like, the highest, most beautiful fungi and bacteria, protozoa, everything. So... Uh, you know, and you and, and you could use anything, any little can of cat food. <laughs> you know, that's like a really great food source. You know, anything that's got like a good analysis of protein, fat, and amino acids in it is a great food source for compost tea. You know, you don't have to buy anything expensive from anybody. You know, the most important part of the compost tea is the quality of the compost, you know, if you don't, like, if you get a compost from a municipality or a company that, like, turns it every week and they oxidize it all the time just to get it finished, that's not great compost. You know, it might be dark, it might be uh, screened nicely, but it doesn't have a diverse microbial population because if there's only one environment there and that's highly oxygenated turned compost you know static pile compost is very complex you know a static pile a guy named will brinton from woods End lab you know he they called him the julia child of compost you know maybe 25 years ago he he's got these piles with oxygen probes and co2 probes stuck in them that sit there for years and you know he'll look at it and monitor these levels and you know he found out like it'll go from an anaerobic to an aerobic phase it'll and it'll you know when the co2 spikes the oxygen is low like a couple of weeks later it reverses you know then the microorganisms change and they go to a high oxygen environment to a low co2 until you know it goes up and down over time till it gets the peaks and the valleys get smaller and smaller and then it levels off and that is like the the best, you know, microbially diverse compost that you can have so that, you know, when you make it and you, you've you got different conditions in your soil, you know, maybe one part of your garden's in the shade and one part is in full sun and one part might have a little clay, it might be a little wet and a little more compacted and not as receptive to tillage, you know, that's the kind of compost 
tea you want because it, then it's going to have all of these different microbes in it, and they're going to, to arise in the conditions that favor them. I wonder what you think of my uh, lazy-ass way of composting that I do. I have a few chickens, mm-hmm. um, and I have these 21-gallon tubs, and just as waste is produced, that's you know anything that would compost, I just throw them in there. And so it is getting done over time with uh, not the way you would typically compost because, you know, new stuff's going in every day. It's kind of like the whole baking a cake thing, but it doesn't really compost that much. They're breaking it down. They're eating what they want. They're crapping in it. There's bugs coming in, what have you. And when that bin, you know, with them eating and some of it breaking down and all finally is full, I take that and I go put it in a pile somewhere. I throw some some, uh, organic, you know, non-sprayed straw on top of it. Mm-hmm. And I leave it alone, and I put the bin back, and I do it again. And I don't touch it. I just leave it there. That's when great. When it looks done, when it smells done, when it feels right, then it's done. And if it takes a year, fine. If it takes two years, I don't care. I, and it usually doesn't take that you know, more than a year, but I don't, I don't once that is, they're done with it, they've had their way with it, mm-hmm. it just sits in a kind of a shady area with some straw on top of it. Do you taste it? I don't taste compost. Kidding. compost. <laughs> no, I, I rub it into my hands. I feel it. Yeah. Um, I'll, well. I'll get it into my hands, and I'll, I'll get my face right down. And I'll, I'll kind of mm-hmm. nail yeah. my hands. Yeah. But I'm not big on eating compost. Um, no. I was a, that was a joke. Okay. Because right. <laughs> I think some people actually do, and I'm like, I don't know that that's a good idea. Well, uh, if, no. if, if, the, if it smells good, you know, well, I'll tell you the cheapest and best test for compost is like when you look at it at that point where you think you're ready to use it, if you could pick it up in your hand, squeeze it, and maybe like gently rub it between your two hands and like drop it out of your hands and, you know, smack your hands together and dust them off and your hands are clean, that's good compost. Mm. If you pick up, like I guarantee if you go to one of these, I mean, either an industrial or a municipal place that's turning the hell out of their compost and you pick it compost up and you do that, your hands are going to be black. I would agree with that. That's because, because the iron of the, that the turner is made from is always, you know, breaking down and 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 killing the environment and you know like even farming like plowing and disking and rototilling and even you know spading you know those spading machines they have that are really wonderful tillage tools but overdoing it with any of those things as you as the iron wears off in the soil it breaks down the soil's ability to hold water you know, every time you do that with your tillage and you don't restore the biology, like, you know, you take away 50%. If you don't restore it back to 150 or 200%, you get, you're getting behind. And that's, that's why, like, during the Bronze Age, you know, agriculture, you know, had a quantum leap forward in food production and, you know, population growth. Is because inadvertently, because it's all you know, that's all they had the technology to work with was this softer uh, bronze metals. But it turned out to be really, really good for farming. 
Very interesting. So can you talk a little bit about, you've mentioned it kind of in passing a few times, but haven't gone like in a deep dive into it, the, the role of uh, mycorrhizal fungi uh, and, and how beneficial those are. Oh, well, the, the mycorrhizae are the Internet of the soil, if you would. You know, the, once if, if, if you could quickly establish that in a, you know, in an annual crop, like after you do your tillage and you do your planting, you know, if you could uh, quickly establish a mycorrhizal network, that, you know, then, you know, your roots on your plants are going to be bigger and finer and deeper, and the mycorrhizae are able to transfer nutrients back and forth wherever it's needed. You know, someplace in in uh, Germany, I think they did. Like they had a section of woods there that was like 600 miles across of uninterrupted woodland, and they actually DNA tested the wood, uh, the 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 mycorrhizae from one side to the other, and it was genetically the same. Mm. So you, you know, so basically, it's like the largest. Organiz- organism organization that could live on this planet if it's undisturbed that way and you know what they found especially with trees is that if you know a tree you know a hundred miles away needed something that was on the edge of the of the woods that for some reason because it's on the edge you know like permaculture edges are very productive right yeah, so then the those minerals and nutrients could be moved all the way to these trees that far away that that are going to need that that they don't have access to in their immediate area. So and you know so if, if you've got this stuff growing in your soil and then like there's a whole other component to you know when you add in the like some of the knowledge that you get from biodynamics, you know, Steiner said that when you get, you know, the soil in the right condition with the microbes and in the mycorrhizae and the structure, you know, like, you know, soil should be 50% mineral, 25% air, and 25% moisture. You know, that's, you know, the, you know that's how it's composed. And then, you know, within that mineral and moisture and air, you get these colloids form with the with the microbes, with the mycorrhizae, and, you know, part of having the biological complexity that way is, and that access, that 25% air, is that, you know, in the evening, there's an inhalation air above the farm or your garden and then in the morning it kind of exhales so there's like a whole breathing process and then like you were saying before they could measure this energy in in the earth you know those telluric forces which are all aided and increased by you know the biology and the and certainly the mycorrhizae organisms are a huge part of that. I mean, I could, you know, you could sit here and imagine and talk about it for a long time, and 
I don't think anybody's either proved it or disproved it at this point in time yet, but there's no doubt that this complex organization is very, very important. And, you know, the the whole body of this, the mycorrhizae, is composed of silica. You know, it's probably 90% silica, which, you know, we know from, you know, com- computers and communication devices, that's how those things work. They work through silica. You know, silica is, you know, your sight, your smell, your taste, your hearing, a whole nerve sense capability operates through the, you know, the molecule silicon. I, I, I can tell you, uh, not a very well-controlled experiment, but an experiment I did was very, very interesting. I do a lot here with aquaponics, and actually my favorite aquaponics uh, growing medium is soil. I do wicking beds with the water through the bottom. So I had a couple of beds planted exactly the same. They were given the same fertility. They were side by side, but they were in a, a system that's sharing the same water. Right, mm-hmm. it's a continuous circulating system, and I inoculated one last year, and the growth rate of the plants in that bed far exceeded the one next to it. I mean, and they're as close as they can be. They've got the same temperature, water, all that stuff. But what happened in time is that mycorrhizae went systemic and, and turned up in all the beds, and you can see these strands of, of fungi in the soil in all the beds. Uh, because, of course, components of them traveled through the whole system. Right. You could still see the accelerated growth in the plants that were in the inoculated beds versus the non-inoculated beds at, at the beginning of the growth cycle. And so, I mean, to me that proved two things. Number one, it works, but I think there's a lot of proof of that. But the systemic nature of something like that, if you get it into an ecosystem it's, and you give it the right conditions, it's going to spread – and then as you were talking about, I've, I've always been fascinated by the, basically the communications and um, the, really the nutrient network that it forms. It can actually transport things. It's, and when it attaches to the root of a of plant, it, ex, it becomes in many ways an extension of that plant's roots. Yes, absolutely. And, and then, you know, also you've got to figure that the water itself is a carrier of information. So if, if it's growing in the water and it's being circulated through, it's going it, to – all it takes is like a microscopic piece of that. Absolutely. To, you know, land someplace and then it's going to start to grow. You know, I had, I don't know, maybe in the last 10 years I had a bunch of uh, yarrow that I had picked and it kind of got a little wet and moldy. So I made a bunch of tea out of it. And so I took, you know, I took the tea and I strained it and I sprayed it in this area. Like it was next to my bee, my bee beehives. And man, like the yarrow came up like grass. And I was like, I didn't, you know, there was no seeds in this stuff. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, you just, you got to scratch your head, you know. <laughs> You know, it's like, okay. The soil is just this massive seed bank, and all these seeds that are there are waiting for a trigger. Um, I've been running ducks through a portion of my system for a long time, and they pretty much, 
have wiped out the understory growth in the forest of any kind of herbs, even though I've tried to get it grown and the ducks are leaving now for a while. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I, I spread parsley seed in this uh, this three quarter acre food forest about three years ago. It's the last time I did it. None of it ever really grew. Uh, this spring, the ducks were gone from that area, and I've got little plate, and I don't have a ton of it. Little pots were. Where, where parsley are coming up now. The, my view is since it never grew, so it couldn't have went to seed. Is that seed's three or four years old? And there's some of those seeds that were sitting in that soil seed bank. They just waited for their condition, and when their condition was there, then they decided to grow. And so to me, it's almost like you created a trigger for that which was there and waiting for its trigger. Absolutely. Yeah, and. You know, not to miss the point, the we were talking about the mycorrhizae before, and you know that is the equisetum tea totally sets up the environment in your soil for the mycorrhizal fungus. So you know that you know the equisetum tea is one of the you know unsung biodynamic preps, you know because the only. Steiner only talks about either, you know, making a decoction of it and fermenting it or just using it as a fresh tea. So it doesn't have the uh, any of the mystique of, you know, stuffing it in a horn or the cow skull or the intestines. It's just a very simple, clean, straightforward thing. But I think it's really the linchpin preparation to to use and whether you know if you if you're doing anything with your garden and you want to get really activate the soil microbial activity in your mycorrhizal fungus you know the fermented equisetum tea is really really the way to go um, how long does it take for these types of methods to work? I mean, people are in a, I call it a microwave society. Uh, they have no patience. Uh, but, but if you're doing this stuff right, how long should it be before you see visible signs of, of, of this working? Well, my snarky answer to that is what's your level of perception? <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly where you're going. Please. Well, because look, because you know, when when I first started doing it, I swear to God, at first, when I first started doing the biodynamics, the truth is, is that it it really took me ten years before I had my aha moment. Okay, but after that, I mean, I I could be spraying somebody's a yard I've never sprayed before. And, you know, boom, I'm spraying down the side of their property, maybe 50 or 100 feet, and I'll pull the hose back and go back to where I started, and already the plants look different to me. You know, the gesture of the way they're holding their leaf. I mean, the classic example around here is like rhododendron. You know, there are a lot of these these roadies here. Everything is like droopy. You know, because Long Island has been inhabited since the 1600s. And if you really want to go back to the Dutch, maybe even like 50 or 100 years before, the English landed here in 1644 and kind of took over. But before that, the Dutch were here. And so all of the fertility, like we talked about before, organic and conventional, was very conventional. You know, yeah, they might have been peasant farmers. They might have had a little more wisdom than 
modern day conventional farmers, but the the ideas that Steiner put forth in biodynamics are totally 21st century. You know, people always like to talk about it. Oh, it's an ancient pagan. No, this is for now. This is this is like you know. This is like 5G for your soil. And, you know, one of the components is is this silica preparation. You know, so around here for the last 250 years, 300, no, it's 250, it's 375 years since the first settlement out here, it's all basically been one-sided fertility. You know, the manuring, NPK, and, you know, in biodynamic talk, that would be like the lime-calcium root polarity has just been so overstimulated, you know, that the plants don't have much of this upright tendency, tending ability. And, you know, like a lot, you know, my teas, whether it's... uh, all my all my stuff has silica in it, and so when you spray that on the plants, in moments they will lift themselves up and show their levitational capabilities. I mean, then literally, I like would have people like looking at me, and I'll spray their rhododendron. I'll say, "Just keep your eye on this thing," and it, within 15 minutes, the plant has a totally different gesture. You know, I know it sounds it sounds weird to the person that's maybe not understanding what you're saying, but I I totally get it because we see plants do this in other instances. You can go out, let's say you, you it's kind of dry, so you water your plants. Mm-hmm. You look at everything, and, and they respond in some way, but it's still they're, they're, they're sad, right? But when you get one of those really heavy, energetic rainstorms with lightning and thunder, mm-hmm. real rain, and when that when that passes and you walk outside, if if you can't see a difference in the vegetation, then your perception's off, as I think you were saying, because it's it's actually pretty dramatic the difference that you see in that type of event. So plants have this response that. Uh, you can look at it as a plant that's really sad. It's almost ready to die, and it hasn't been watered, and it its leaves are droopy. And you water it, and if everything is still a go, you know, in 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 literally uh, minutes, it picks up, right? So what you're talking about is that same type of a response, but at a a, a less visible to the average person kind of way. Mm-hmm. And and you know, you know everything. In nature, it's like, I don't know, like, there's a great guy on YouTube, this guy Ken Wheeler, who talks about magnetism and electricity and dielectricity and gravity and all this stuff. And man, he could either really twist your head up or he could, like, totally put things in perspective for you. But he's really put things in perspective with me because, you know, really, there's, there's not really, like, you know, positive and negative is like charge and discharge. There's like centripetal and centrifugal. So, you know, in the in the plant world, you know, there's this like I said, there's lime calcium and there's silica. So the like the lime calcium thing like pulls and sucks energy. Like lime is demanding. Like that's the feminine pull, right? If we think of it that way, 
like the feminine energy, like it wants what it wants. You know, that's why you get your honeydew list. And the male silica, he does it, you know, if he wants to keep mama happy, you know, you give, you, you, you do everything on the list. You know, the, so the silica is very giving and it makes things happen. So, you know, by having these preparations that are based on that, you know, you've got this married couple that together complete the plant. And it gives it like a, like the full energy packet and it, you know, you, and anybody that's really growing in the garden and watching and, and loving their plants and paying attention can see it. You know, I don't want to tell people that they're imperceptive. They're not. Everybody's, you know, got the ability to be very observant, you know, and that's really, you know, what I think you're trying to cultivate with your show and your conversations that you have. And it's certainly, you know, what I'm trying to, you know, cultivate and make available to people is that, yeah, you know, do this and pay attention, you know. No, I think everybody has a, a, a massive receiver. Uh, they, they can receive tremendous amounts of information, energy, feedback, etc. But whether or not you're using it is the is the key, right? So the the thing is there. Uh, but are you kind of comparing it to tools? I'll often say you give one guy a hammer and he'll bust his thumb, and you give another guy a hammer and he'll build your house with it. So you have to use tools, but you have to you have to actually use the tool as it's intended to be used. Uh, so for a lot of time, I think we've we've been we've been lulled into turning off our perception of so many things that are important, and lulled into and then conditioned to turning on perception to things that really aren't important, things that are outside of our our, our, our circle of influence. Uh, we worry about all kinds of things that we're never are worrying about them is not going to affect them at all. And every human being has a limitation in space, in time, in perception, in energy. You know, if we didn't, we'd all be superheroes. So since we have these limitations, if you're using your perception to think about what's going on around the other side of the world and something you think is important for you to think about, then you're not using it to just understand what's in your own backyard. And right. it's about tuning that in, uh, which, which requires in many instances the tuning out of other things just because of our limitations. So I believe everybody has that ability for, for certain. Um, with, with all of this in mind, if you want to kind of move over to this methodology, how do you start converting a, you know, a farm or even just a garden or, you know, most of my listeners, we've got some farmers out there and ranchers and what have you, but I mean, most of my listeners are more of like the homestead type. So they have kind of the, the more like a farmstead, I guess, type of mm-hmm. what, what is their first steps in moving in this direction if that's what they want to try? Well, you got to, you know, you'd, you got to make a decision. Am I going to, you know, stir stuff by hand? Am I going to make extracts? So you could, you know, you could start with a, a, you know, depending on how much liquid you need to treat your garden. It could be a five-gallon bucket. It could be a 10-gallon little Rubbermaid garbage can. It could be 25, 50, a 55-gallon drum, a stick, and the compost, and, you know, learn you know, play with the water and learn how to stir it and see what it's like to build a vortex with 40, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 gallons of water and, you know, have the compost to put in, have a way to apply it. And it's great because 
you could just use, you know, get a smaller bucket and like a big, uh, you know, those big fat paintbrush or those brushes for like spreading wallpaper glue on a big piece of wallpaper and dunk it in the water and just flip it around your garden and cover it, cover the land that way. And and you start, you know, I mean, I mean, and like, you know, you have to ask yourself, what am I doing here? You know, how how am I providing nutrients? You got, you know, if you're buying bags of, you know, conventional fertilizer, you know, you got to maybe say, well, I'm going to eliminate nitrogen first. I'm going to use these teas and eliminate eliminate nitrogen. Because, you know, you should get your nitrogen from the microorganisms. Because, you know, proteins, the uh, fatty acids, amino acids, are all based on the nitrogen molecule. Amine is NH, NH4, is, is the basic of, basis of protein structure is nitrogen so you're going to get you know your nitrogen from the microorganisms living reproducing and then dying and giving their bodies up to the soil and then you know by allowing your soil to become intelligent again and then letting the roots grow you know and, and develop their fineness and not taking it away with applications of nitrogen because that's all nitrogen really does is it diminishes the root of the plants. You know, I used to dig a lot of trees and move trees and stuff and, you know, the nursery guys that were able to, were interested in turning crops out, you know, when they dug their trees and they had them in a bowl, man, their survival rate was like really bad. And because they, you know, they're putting all this nitrogen down and the plant didn't have much of a root system. So when they dug it up and they cut it out of the ground, unless you put it right back in the same kind of environment with as much water and as much artificial fertilizer as they were using in the nursery, you'd get like 70% death rate. Which is, you know, if you buy a hundred plants from somebody and put them out in a landscape, you're in friggin' trouble. Because when they start dying and you gotta replace everything, really eats into, you know, what you charge for the job. So when you have the nitrogen free, artificial nitrogen free root systems, it really changes the way the plants grow and it changes their habit and feeding habits and their structure. Now, that's not to say that you, you still have to pay attention to, you know, your soil chemistry. In the last, last year, one of the nurseries I was working with, my friend, he just, he just was like, oh, he was just trying to get the place, you know, he put in, I don't know, he had maybe 50, 60 acres of privet, and he was really trying to get it nice and have it growing properly, and there was a bunch of it that just wasn't growing right, and he was spraying it with my teas, and it was healthy, but it just was not doing its thing, and we had this company come in, 
and look at our soil test, and like you know, I look at it, and you could see that it was deficient in. You know, we have a lot of phosphorus in the soil here, but it's locked up. It's really not available, and that kind of got you know. There's there's a great chart that shows uh, pH and availability of nutrients. It's really something that everybody should look at. You know, look at your soil pH, and look at this nutrient availability chart. And you know, see where you are, and like if you've got a clay soil, that's like also something you got to look at. But you know, we we didn't have the phosphorus available, and we were definitely low in potassium. And we just, you know, we had a bunch of uh, liquid, you know, P and K made up and we did some foliar applications with that and man the plants just turned around in a few days you know there was stuff that was chlorotic that greened up and put on some nice growth and you know i i was having them spray uh in my teas i was using seaweed because instead of like fish emulsion you know because the seaweed has in it a uh a hormone that keeps your internodal growth really tight as opposed to nitrogen, which is going to give you, like, big growth spurts and spread out the growth. So, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, it was, you know, it's it's important to look, you know, at, uh, you, you know your soil chemistry as well as the biology, and you know one you know, like if you take your soil samples like this time of year and the soil's cold and nothing's really growing, and you're looking at you know what's active and what's available and what's not there and what's there, when the soil warms up and you got plants growing in it, it's a totally different story. So you know one of the thought processes that's going on now is, you know, to look at your soil when the plants are growing, because when you add the roots and the warmth and, the you know, the longer days and there's a living plant growing in it, it's got different chemistry. So, you know... Yeah, because everyone, you know, everyone, like, you know, you pull your samples. Like, I don't know how many times I walked out in the field this time of year or late in the fall, and I pulled samples and had them sent out after everything's been harvested and dug up and the ground's all tilled. And and it's all, it's it's not a, it's not a real picture of what it's like when you have living uh, plants and warmth and long days and, you know, proper moisture. Like, you know, if you go out now, the soil's too wet, it's too cold, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing really in it yet. So, you know, you want to you wanna do your tests close to when you want your, when your plants are going to be growing, you know. And, you know, you could, with foliar feeding, you can get in there and, you know, amend any deficiencies pretty quick. I'm a big fan of foliar feeding. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. It's, it's easy. For the gardener, I think it's the easiest and most dramatic thing you can do um, to to correct problems. It's it, it's almost immediate in, in many instances. Yeah, in, in 15 minutes, it absorbs through the leaf of the plant. 
Just don't do it in the middle of the day while the sun's beating down on it at 100% radiation. That's that's. Yeah, you do it. At, you do it at sunrise. You know, before 11 o'clock in the morning, you do it after 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's when you want to be out there anyway. Absolutely. Especially you if you live in Texas, trust me. <laughs> yeah, listen, you know, like I live here, I live here on the beach, man. It's like, you know how many people here work all day? It's like, look, you got a 12, 14-hour day. Why are you working in the, at from 12 to 3? You should be at the beach or under a shady tree. Relax. <laughs> There's you a reason half of the world takes a siesta in the middle of the day, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason they do it. Uh, if, if you look at aboriginal societies, people think that these guys are out, like, humping it through the jungle all the time. They spend an awful lot of time laying down and, and taking naps. They really do. <laughs> they, they really, if you look at any hunter-gatherer society and you look at what they're doing in the middle of the day, they're all laying around somewhere telling stories and taking naps. It's, it's you know, it's it's almost like humans were designed to work that way. Um, to work when we need to and to rest when we don't. But it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And then this is a total uh, aside, but if you, you give those people a modern society, they come up with all of our illnesses and diseases and problems that make you, you, you give them the modern lifestyle that they never had until you did that. It's, it's kind of weird. Yeah, until you, you inflicted it on them. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about your Vortex Brewer and the things that you do and stuff like that, can you tell them uh, the, the website they need to check out? They go to vortexbrewer.com, um, and I also, you know, keep a Facebook page going. You know, it's just Vortex Brewer on Facebook, and I like what I do there is I like to post, you know, brewers that I'm, you know, whenever I build one to get ready to ship it out, I take pictures of it, I fill it with water, I run it, and I put up, you know, different recipes and you know, anytime anybody wants to ask me something, I got no secrets. I got nothing proprietary about what I do. You know, I mean, that was, you know, if if you're growing your food, there was there's nothing I would expect you to do or buy where I wouldn't tell you exactly what I did to it or what's in it or how I did it. You know, I think that's not a lot to ask. You know, I mean, I get that a lot of times from people. They're like, "Oh, that's proprietary." It's like, well, then I can't, I can't use it if it's proprietary. If you can't tell me what's in this stuff, I can't use it. I'm with so, you, man. Yeah, and you know, look, you know, there's, you know, like we were talking about science before, you know, and like you know, re- I, I can't stand the word research. I mean, I want to discover stuff. I'm not interested in researching old stuff, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> and and uh, so you know when I find stuff out, I want to share it with people, and I want them to take it into their garden, their usage, their landscape, their permaculture, whatever it is, and you know be able to enjoy the same thing that I'm seeing because you know. It, it doesn't it doesn't do me any good, and you know if they want a list of books to read that I read that led me on this path, I could you know I'll give you that too, you know. I'd say you know read the agriculture lectures, get some books by Victor Schauberger. If you really want to blow your mind, get some books by Lily Kalisko, Agriculture of Tomorrow. You know those are three books right there that will give you twenty years worth of work to do. 
Hey, I got one before I let you go. I got one quick question for you here because I, I find this fascinating. Yeah. So I've done a lot with Google Culture over the years, and I'm on your your Facebook uh, page now. And I'll make sure that a link to uh, the Vortex Brewer site and the Facebook page are both in the show notes for people today. Uh, if they come by the site, they can click link. But I see this uh, um, this this post on Google Culture beds, and your comment on it is very much in what I've always tried to say, but not maybe this way. You said it's a great way to make your own Vortex Brewer inoculant. And I've always said that Google Culture does a lot of great things, but what it really is is a soil-building system. Uh, the, the, the master of the, the whole Hugel bed is Sepp Holzer, and in general, people understand that, yeah, he builds all these beds, but the, their end of life is they get spread out on a terrace, and they, he, he's built, you know, a million dollars worth of soil for almost nothing. Uh, so, is, is that kind of what you're saying there, that, that these, these beds themselves are basically slow composting systems? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, and and what you know, when you plant different things in it, you're going to pull in and draw in different energy and different minerals and different nutrients that's going to express itself in in a compost tea, whether it's vortex brewed or just regular in the water, bubbled up chaotically, whatever. You know, you just go out and do something. You know, do something new, do something different, and you know, just watch what happens. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Like people often ask me, like, how are you sure this is what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know exactly what's going on. It's nature. There's like a billion things going on there. But I do know that I did this here and that there, and this one worked better. So, or mm-hmm. this particular environment is where this plant seems to want to grow. So I'm going to put it in other places that are like this one. And that that acceptance of feedback is a huge permaculture principle. Uh, to, to to accept that feedback and to to realize that there's yeah, you know, one of the things I've done is we we have a lot of issues here, and I'm trying to improve soil health and all. But growing tomatoes down here is not like growing tomatoes like they were when my when I grew up as a kid in Pennsylvania. My grandfather, you could open mm-hmm. a tomato and throw it on the ground, kick some dirt on it, and come back, and there'd be a tomato plant there in six weeks with flowers on it, starting you know with, with a stalk as big as your thumb. Uh, we get really bad uh, early and late blight down here, and yeah, I'm going to keep working on that problem. But uh, when I grow tomatillos, I have to chop them down with a machete. So why fight what the feedback is that is, hey, we want to grow to- we, the The soil is like, I want to grow tomatillos for you here. Okay, well, I'll let you do that, right? Like that right. acceptance of feedback right. is, is an amazing thing if you'll just do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, the thing, like we have that problem here, like Cornell will send out the thing, oh, somebody over here in Southold has late blight early. So I always say, I'm like, well, okay, well, let's talk about what they did not do, you know, I, because, you know, like boron is a, is like a crucial nutrient for that because if you don't have enough boron and you don't need a lot of boron, you know, boron is something like, you know, max between two and three parts per million, but if you don't have enough boron, the plant's not going to be able to get the silica it needs to build its vascular system to transport sap up and down the stalk and out into the leaves, down into the roots and out into the fruit. So, yeah, you know, so, you know, all these diseases in plants, I like to look at it like this. Somebody once explained it to me like this. It's like when you have uh, either a fungus 
on a, on the leaf, attacking the leaf, or it's a, a leaf that a bug eats eats between the veins of the leaf until it's, it just looks like a you know a skeletal pattern. You know, it's the same thing in us. Like when your arm or your leg falls asleep. You know, it's the same kind of thing is going on in the plant. You know, it's like the uh, the etheric body has withdrawn its energy from the plant. So it's, there's a void there, and nature doesn't like vacuums and voids. So when it when that condition happens, something comes along and eats it because it's going to not be fit for consumption. So it's important, you know, to have, you know, your basic building blocks in place at the beginning of the growing season, especially for like heavy feeding plants like tomatoes and rapidly growing and they'll grow. They grow a lot. They'll continually, you know, fruit, you know, set flowers and set fruit until they freeze here, you know. Absolutely, man. Well, you know what, Steve, I really appreciate you being with us today and, and, and sharing all this information with us. Again, I've got uh, links set for the show notes uh, to your Facebook page okay. and to your website so people can get by there. And uh, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for taking time to be with us today. All right, Jack. Thank you, too. Thank you. So with that, uh, let's talk about another way you can support the show. And if you usually skip this segment and maybe jump ahead to the song of the day or something, don't. This is important today. Whether you do your shopping through T-Spaz or not, whether you buy the product I'm going to recommend for you today or not, if you cook on the grill at all and you use a brush to clean your grill and that brush is made out of metal, I want to talk to you about today's product and I want to make you aware of something because it could save your life. I, I am dead serious. It's not dramatic you know, uh, marketing or something like that. The product is by a company called Gven, G-V-E-N, and it is a bristle-free grill brush. And it's for it's stainless steel, and it's for cleaning gunk off of your grill top. And the, the go-to for years and years and years uh, for cleaning grill surfaces is a stainless steel bristled brush. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was looking for such a brush, and I couldn't find one in a store, and I wondered what was going on and why so many of them seemed to have disappeared. And that week, uh, later in that week, I was sitting down with my wife, and she put on a show as a former nurse that she really, really loves uh, called Untold Stories of the ER. And there was this kid in there, and he got really in a lot of pain and really, really sick, and they weren't sure what it was, and things were getting worse and worse. And finally they did a scan, and they found uh, his, his small intestines had been twisted, and they saw a little sliver of something in there, and when the father saw it, he immediately recognized it and knew what it was. It was a bristle from a wire brush that he had used to clean the grill, and it stuck to the food, and the kid ate the food and swallowed this, this piece of steel, and it went down and it managed to get through his stomach and into his intestines where it embedded itself, pierced through, and then created basically a knot in his intestines plus rip and tear from this steel. Now, obviously, this can be a problem for your digestive system and other things. Uh, leaking from the intestine into the internal parts of the body are not good. But it can happen at many levels. This turns out to be something kind of commonplace. Now, I have a video in the notes for today's write-up of an uh, ER doctor in Connecticut. 
And in their one, one emergency room over an 18-month period, they had six incidences of that. This isn't something really, really common, but it, if you got six people going to one ER over 18 months, about one every six months, take that across the whole country. How many ERs do you think there are in the country? So this has become a real problem. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You're using a, a brush. One of those bristles breaks off. If it ends up stuck to the grill, it can end up stuck to the food. It ends up in your body. And it probably happens more than there are problems. There are probably people that pass them without it getting embedded somewhere or get embedded somewhere and don't know it's there and maybe it doesn't cause them a problem right away but later on. So you don't want that. It's one of those things that's not worth the risk. Now, of course, I tell you what I think has happened over the years is the quality of all produced mass-produced goods has gone down. And in this case, when that quality slip over the last 10, 15 years occurred, it occurred in a place where it actually caused a problem no one probably ever thought of before. But the, the one that I recommend, and it's the one that I use, again, it's made by a company called Gwen, G-V-E-N. It's really sturdy, it works really good, and it's affordable. It's like 15 bucks. And it does a great job. And, and, and what, the reason I bought it, though, because there's tons of these types of brushes. And I suggest any one of them over a bristle-style brush. But it's built really well. The way that the arms are built, the way that the weld is that holds them together, the handle itself, when you hold this thing, you can tell this is a well-put-together tool. That means it's going to last a long time, and that means your money's well-invested. So... If you don't shop through T-Spest, that's fine. If you don't get this particular brush, that's fine. If you use a grill and you have an old-style bristle brush for it, please get rid of it and get a different solution because the first rule of survival is to wake up tomorrow. And if you have a piece of metal tearing your guts apart, you just might not. And on the other side, I haven't found a lot of fatalities from this. But I found a lot of really miserable people having a really miserable time and being in a lot of pain and having to undergo surgery. And generally, if you're cooking out, that's supposed to be a great day with friends and family, not a day that somebody ends up at the emergency room. So this is one of those risks that's just not worth taking. So I've given you some information today. I hope you'll use it no matter what. And like I said, whether you shop at T-Spaz or not, please, please take this one to heart. This is a real thing that really does happen. Uh, but if you do want to support our show, any of your online shopping can help us just by going to tspaz.com first. You can see all of my reviews, including they're all broken out now by you know product categories and things like that. Remember, guys, if it's at tspaz, I own it. I use it, and it's in my home. If I don't own it, I don't use it, and it's not in my home, either it doesn't go on tspaz or it's something I just don't really need. I, I do probably have maybe one out of a hundred items, if that, maybe probably like one out of 200 items that I don't personally own, but I've touched it, I've used it with somebody else, I just don't need one, but I want to make it available to you. That's the integrity I try to provide with my product reviews for you. With that, let's talk about today's song of the day. Um, of course, we're in Queen Week, and today's song is called, Who Wants to Live Forever? You Highlander fans will know what this is from. Queen was commissioned to write this for the movie Highlander, and Brian May wrote it after watching the first cut of the film. He wrote the line, Who Wants to Live Forever, in a cab on his way home from viewing the film. Inspiration came from the scene where Connor McLeod takes his dying wife Heather into his arms at the time of her death. This is also the scene where the song is played. Um, it's, it's a pretty incredible song. It's not real heavy on the vocals. It's a very stirring uh, instrumental song with a 
for Queen, very soft background vocal, uh, but I think uh, I think you'll appreciate it, and I think you'll enjoy it, and I think it's another example of the amazing vocal range um, that that both Freddie Mercury and Brian May have, and they both played a part in the vocals of this song. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. for us.